0: The way you get to that exponential growth is leverage on your people, your time, your talent and your resources. So every dollar, every hour you spend every day, you got to make sure you're you're getting the most bang for your buck. That's the difference between good versus great. Early days you overcompensate for lack of experience, I know I did, but just working my ass off really hard on all hundred decisions. You learn what 10 product decisions matter. If you get the right 10 decisions and get the right answers, you're going to do better than most. You want diversity on your board. I think you want, like all things, a creative tension. As a founder or CEO, you probably want folks around the table that are going to help you make the company better, and that's gonna have tension.
1: Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of conversations with top minds in Venture Capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Jerry Chen, a partner at Greylock. We talk about what he learned during his tenure at VMware. His three pronged framework for evaluating enterprise software companies and what it means to be a good board member. As always, if you've got questions or want to be in touch, email me at VC at Jerry, welcome to Venture Confidential.
0: Thanks for having me. It's not really confidential, is it?
1: Welcome to uh, Venture Broadcast. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I don't have exact numbers, but I think our listenership is small enough that it's still semi confidential at got this it. point. Yeah. You graduated from Stanford with an engineering degree, spent a couple of years at a consulting company, a couple of years in private equity, went to business school, and then VMware for nine years. Why VMware? A couple
0: reasons. One, it was the smartest people I found. Mm-hmm. And in my career, I've always followed where the talent is. So uh, after Stanford, went to Bain because the smartest people were working at Bain in San Francisco then. It was 1995, 96. Netscape just went public. It was the it was the dot-com days. And we were just tracking a lot of smart people. And then after that, you know, a couple of tours in New York and private equity, a tour in venture capital during the dot-com days. And then when I was at business school, I did an internship for VMware. And there were smartest engineers, smartest business people, smartest product people. And, you know, regardless of the market the industry or the job title, I just follow the smart people.
1: Tell me about those early years. You know, VMware during this time seemed to just be a breeding ground for future talent. Like we've seen so many cool leaders emerge from this sort of decade at VMware. What was it like working there? It was amazing.
0: You know, I guess when I was lucky. I helped create a couple product lines there: Cloud Foundry in the later days and early days, something called VDI or Virtualized Desktop Infrastructure. And I think what VMware was it was, A, a magnet of of talent. Like I said, smart people attract smart people. And then B, the competition against Microsoft and other competitors like Oracle or Sun in in the early days was a crucible. Because Mm -hmm. it forced us to be Ruthless about prioritizing our product features, our engineering, our go to market sales resources. Because when you are doubling in headcount and doubling in revenue every single year, sometimes you think it's easy, right? Sometimes, you, in many ways, from the outside, is like, wow, these guys are, are growing so fast that anything they do works well. But it's not by accident, right? So part of the market is, is, is like sucking you up in, inside the, the proverbial tornado, if you will. But also, the way you get to that exponential growth is leverage on your people, your time, your talent, and your resources. So every dollar, every hour you spend every day, you got to make sure you're, you're, you're getting the most bang for your buck. And that's the difference between good versus great. When you're early in your career, you have 100 decisions you can make in a week or a month. 10 matter, right? 10 decisions matter. So the difference between good versus great is knowing which 10 decisions to spend time, focus on, and get right. Because the other nine decisions, either one, someone else will make the decision, two, you can fix it later, or three, it's a rounding error. So just like when I ran product, there's only 10 features of any product that matters. You get those 10 right, you're great. And any job, running a product, running sales, running engineering, if you get the right 10 decisions and get the right answers, you're going to do better than most.
1: How do you figure out what those key product decisions are?
0: A lot of experience, so I mean, IQ and intellect Helps, but early days you overcompensate for lack of experience. I know I did, but just working my ass off, really hard on all hundred decisions. Uh-huh. And when you realize, <laughs> you know, you're working eighteen hours a day, seven days a week, either coding or running product or running sales, you're not working smarter. It's working. You're working more, more, and not even harder. And so, partially, it's experience. You learn what ten product decisions matter. Partly, you get mentorship. So you seek out folks inside the company, outside the company that can give you some advice. And three, study what's worked in the past, what's worked in analogous businesses and and other markets. But the hard part of studying the past or studying other products is understanding what are the right lessons to learn and not the wrong ones. And what I mean by this is, oftentimes, as investors or product people or founders, we see success, we see failure, and we're pulling the wrong lesson, right? We're, we're learning the wrong pattern, or the wrong anti-pattern. And the truth of the matter is, oftentimes, the driver for success is something a layer or two layers deeper. So it's not necessarily you know the right channel. It's okay, what the product feature was. Was it the right um, move versus competitor? Was it the right pricing thing? And um, Oftentimes, you stop, like, oh, yeah, they priced it correctly or they got the right developer aesthetic correctly. That's not true at all, right? Sometimes there's a second or third question to get right. And and the difference is, don't stop when you have what you think is the right answer. Ask one or two more questions. And so, if you're always asking these questions as a a product person or an investor or as a founder, you'll probably get the right answer eventually.
1: I'd love to sort of walk through this. Maybe we could talk about a feature or product you launched at VMware. That had an obvious lesson and a less obvious lesson okay, well we'll start with um, early days, something
0: called uh, virtualized desktop infrastructure. So this was I joined VMware o three as an intern and then 04, 05, 06, I, I ran their enterprise desktop business. So we had a product called workstation, which um, early or was VMware's first product, right? For developers loved it, for QA, for testing browsers, and ran Linux on Windows and Windows on Linux. And so we try to create a product called Ace, like a short computing environment, so basically workstation with security features, encrypted VMs. You basically locality, so we did a secure hash. It can move the VM around. We had um, VM lifecycle, so it would time out and like self destruct. And that product never really took off, hmm. right? And we, we couldn't understand why originally because we thought a lot of these features customers wanted; they were asking for them. At the same time we had a bunch of other customers using VMware's server product it was called ESX server at the time now uh, vSphere but we, there's the the bare metal hypervisor they were hosting windows virtual machines desktop VMs on servers and using like a remote desktop protocol to connect to these VMs mm-hmm. and we were like why I mean were they just hosting these VMs because of cheaper licensing for legacy applications and we could have just stop there and said, hey, it's just another use case for the server product. But I spent a lot of time talking to the customers, asking what was the driver, why were they hosting virtualized desktops on VMware? Why weren't they using Citrix or some other product to host terminal sessions? And it became pretty clear that one, for a bunch of desktop applications, and for all the idiosyncrasies that Windows has, hosting individual desktops made more sense for app compatibility, and also people wanted their own workspace, mm-hmm. right? their, their own, their own VMs, their own, their own world. That Windows, especially, lent itself was was designed around single user, not multiple users. Mm-hmm. And so, by asking the next two or three questions on these use cases, we basically said there's actually a market for hosting desktops. On the server, we call VDI, virtualized desktop infrastructure. And we, we built that to all business. And Amazon, years later, is now hosting workspaces on, on their Amazon cloud in much the same way. And um, it could have been easy to say, hey, let's just stop the first question or two. But if you dive deeply talking to customers and talking to your engineers and understanding how the product was used, you actually found value that wasn't obvious at the time.
1: You had a brief stint in venture. You worked at Excel for a couple of years before business school. That's correct. And then a decade later, you come back to venture. I want to talk about both bookends sure. here. What were those two years like?
0: It was the weirdest time to be in VC because uh-huh. I joined Excel in 2000, the peak of the the dot com mania. So like term sheets were going out the door. There were you know like. Pet sock commercials on the Super Bowl, and it was it was the peak of the dot com mania, if you will. Like companies were going public, with, like no revenue, losing tons of money. It was amazing, and then I saw the the crash. Right. Uh-huh. So then, when the Nasdaq, the market crashed, and then I watched a bunch of companies, startups that had great ideas or great technical teams, couldn't get funding, went out of business. So for me, in that two year period as an associate, I was able to see what it was like at a, a Super Bowl market. In a super bear market mm. which is great because you learn both success and failure in the investment business both while success for almost uh, no reason and then failure for almost no reason because the market's bad and at the same time at excel i was able to work with some really talented investors Peter Fenton and Teresa Ranzetta and Jim all there. I had worked with Teresa and Peter at a previous job in consulting and so that relationship brought me to Accel. And so with Breyer, Wagner, Swartz, Patterson, that whole team there which is a bunch of great investors, so I was surrounded by smart people and I saw this incredible bubble and, and deflation of the bubble. But after that as a young associate, you know, was you know 24 25 trying to invest or advise founders and you realize... As someone who's never had a real job, never shipped product, how can I be a good investor? So how can I, how am I a good picker of companies? Mm-hmm. How can I be a good board member advisor? And why would you, across the table Peter, pick me as your board member? And I realized the VCs and the people at the board meetings I went to the Ad Lot of value actually had experience shipping product. Mm-hmm. And so I went to business school, spent some time learning kind of the language and grammar of business there, uh, and then joined VMware for almost ten years, where I was able to see that rise from like 250 employees to 15,000, and from like 50 million to 5 billion in revenue, and just to ship tons of product. I understood product understood engineering, understood go to market, understood partnerships. That would have made me a better executive no matter what I did, but also I think makes me a better investor and a better board member.
1: You're telling me that your 10 years at VMware was just your own way of getting ready for venture.
0: Yes and no. I would say no job prepares you for VC, VC prepares you no job. Mm-hmm. So you never go to VMware for 10 years, or any company for 10 years, assuming you're, you want to go to venture. Because after I left Accel and joined VMware, I'm like, hey, this is great. I love shipping product. I'm never going to do venture capital again. Mm-hmm. And you know, you don't take a job because you want to be in VC, and anyone who's curious about it, like I don't. You can never predict these careers. But what are the odds you do two years at one VC firm, spend a decade at a company, have it go public in your stock exchange, and then join another great VC firm? You can never predict these things from the beginning. But I got lucky. You know, I got lucky uh, working with great people at Accel, great people at VMware, and then I'm super fortunate now to work with an amazing partnership at Greylock, which um, I hope to spend the next 10, 15 years of my career with.
1: What brought you back
0: into venture? It's a great question. I think um, my partner, Reed Hoffman, calls it uh, tours of duty, mm-hmm. right? And uh, as you think about your career, and so I, I think about my, my 10 years at VMware in two major tours of duty. The first, working for Diane Green, creating the, the desktop business. The second tour of duty in the last four or five years was working for the second CEO, Paul Moritz, creating Cloud Foundry and that whole application platform team that had vFabric, Spring, and a bunch of other products in it. And at the end of that tour of duty, Paul spun off. We spun off a bunch of my team to Pivotal. Mm-hmm. A new CEO is coming in, um, Pat Gelsinger. He's done a great job. And that's kind of a logical bookend. So I did two tours of duty. And the question was do I want to do a third at VMware and do something else, which I could have done? But I said, you know, after, after 10 years, I wanted a new challenge. So I took some time off. And during that time, you know, I traveled, I, you know, Reestablish some hobbies. Talk to a bunch of startups. Talk to a bunch of VC firms. And I never tended to go back to VC, but I had a relationship with a bunch of venture capitalists over, over the years. I got close to the Excel folks early, but in particular, I got close to the Greylock partners, Neil Bussery in particular. Neil was a general partner at Greylock, Also, he's founder CEO of Workday, you know, one of the definitive enterprise SaaS companies out there. Mm-hmm. Anil Neil and I connected and. He, the way he described Greylock is a very special place, right? All the partners around the table are operators and product people. Like Reed Hoffman created LinkedIn and PayPal. David Z was early product person at Excite at home before he became a VC and invested in Facebook and Pandora and LinkedIn. Anil was a product person at PeopleSoft, you know, and then he created Workday while partner at Greylock. And so it's kind of like a uh, My partner John Lily would say like your tribe, you know, is is the DNA, and we're we're all we all think about the world similarly. Um, I think Anil described it: we're we're entrepreneurs with like a a VC checkbook, and that's how we Mm. think about things. And that team felt right for me, and it felt like it was a it was a partnership that I wanted to be part of, and I could it you know, practice and, and practice the VC, the, the job and the career and the art, if you will, the way I wanted to. Which hmm. is basically being thoughtful, being a great partner to founders, investing early in enterprise software companies and, and helping them grow from zero to hopefully, you know, multiple billions of
1: dollars. What were those early days at Greylock like for you? You had a pretty early investment in Docker,
0: right? That was my first investment, um, yeah, in twenty thirteen.
1: Yeah. Great choice. Thanks. We've spoken a bunch on this podcast about that first investment, which, as I understand, is often one of the most stressful investments in a, a VC's career. How did you land on Docker?
0: I would say two things. First, the partnership's super supportive, and the mm-hmm. way they they think about it is like, don't overthink your first investment think about your first four or five investments think of it as a, a basket of four or five projects because if you think of it like your first investment you're over you're going to overthink your first mm. and it's not going to be your last and so the best way to think about it or, or get over that fear and anxiety of your first investment which is still going to happen because you know it's your first investment period mm-hmm. but If you think about like look, this would be one of four investments, one of five investments gonna make over the next two or three years. You know, some would do better than others, then you place less emphasis, less one itis, if you will, on the one deal. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was a great mindset going into it. Secondly, as I looked at Docker, it was two things. One, it was familiar with what Solomon was building, mm-hmm. which was similar to what we're doing with Warden and containers at at VMware the Cloud Foundry, it was really inspired by Dynos at Heroku, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and obviously that was all built upon a bunch of work Google did with, with mm-hmm. Linux at Google and you know, and Solaris containers and on and on. So there's a long history of this technology patterns, if you will, like again, referring we're studying what's happened in the past. And uh, I remember I called up Ben Golub, the CEO of, of Docker at the time, um, Salma's founder and CTO. And I said, Hey, Ben, I'm you know, Jerry at Greylock, and I wanted to talk about investing in um, in Docker. And Ben said to me, it was November 2013, he's like, Oh, I'm going to Hong Kong for the OpenStack Summit next week. Uh-huh. Are you going to be there? I said, Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Hang up the phone basically bought a flight and a ticket to Hong Kong next week. Great. Chased down Ben and the Docker team in Hong Kong at OpenStack Summit and uh convinced Ben that he should raise money from from Graylock and yours truly. And so that's how my first deal happened. Basically uh in finding a, a great technologist like Solomon and you know chasing down the the CEO at Halfway around the World at a conference. I love the persistence.
1: You've had a pretty Consistent track record of enterprise technology at Greylock. Notable to me is Docker and, of course, Cloudera. Do you have a penchant for investing in businesses built on top of open source?
0: I say that what I'm looking for, Peter, is you're always trying to ride a wave bigger than yourself, bigger than your competitors, Mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that is what I'm looking for as an investor is just changes in distribution more than anything else. So you think about, real quickly before I get open source, mainframe to client server, you're selling software not to the mainframe, but to a PC. From client server PCs to the browser, now you're selling software through a browser. The mm-hmm. browser to cloud mobile, now you're selling software or ads from in the cloud or on a screen that you're holding on your smartphone. So really what's most disruptive for a startup is writing New changes in distribution that the incumbents can't is hard to follow because incumbents they're the victims of their own success. They're used to selling software through a PC channel or browser channel. Mm. And so these new channels or new methods of distribution are, are really powerful. So open source, be it Docker or Cloudera or all the other projects. That we we've worked at, at Greylock, and Greylock actually was the first was an investor in Red Hat back in the day. Oh right. My partner uh, Bill Kaiser, open source is uh, a new way of getting software and bits into the hands of your customers, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's that's a, a way we believe in and ride, much like we believe in mobile for consumer or or for other software um, deployments. And so, if you think about what I've done at Greylock, both on on the infrastructure side and cloud side, think about how open source changes how you get software, how the cloud changes how you get software, like databases or security software. Um, I'm invested in a company called Cato Networks that's software-defined wide area networks, right? Which is an incredible company because it, it changes how you think about purchasing networking from location to location. Or I think about some of the SaaS companies I invested in, be it Gladly. Spoke or Blend—they're all cloud-hosted. So again, changing the how your consumer software, and they're changing how you get software from you as an enterprise to your end user. And an end user is going to be a consumer. Um, in the case of Blend, it's like mortgage application software hosted in the cloud, or it could be an enterprise IT buyer like Spoke, where it's, it's going to be your CIO or VP of IT. So I think a lot, Peter, about distribution and channels. Like, how do you get technology and the bits? In the hands of your users, and that could be a developer, could be IT buyer, could be a CFO, could be a VP of sales.
1: Okay, so when you think about open source, you think about it as a distribution channel. Like this is a really cost-effective way of what, distributing your software.
0: Open source is one. It's it's a distribution. To reduce the friction in called awareness and trial, mm-hmm. right for sure. Number two, it's also leveraging called the wisdom of the crowds, the wisdom of of the developers. So instead of having a single company or developer driving your roadmap or driving decisions, you can read the signals of the open source community in terms of going deeper on these questions. It makes it easier for you to kind of figure out where your customers want to go and ask those questions because you have a whole community leading you. So in on one hand, it just reduces friction across the board, it reduces friction on trial, adoption, reduces friction on customers giving feedback because the the open source community will will lead you.
1: You touched on a, a theme you wrote about a while ago, the sort of three enterprise buyers. I'm going to misremember the name of the article. Something, something, something
0: like triangles. The yeah. Triangles, right. Yeah. Jerry's
1: Triangles, in which you say these days when you sell to enterprises, you're selling to three people you're selling to a CMO, a CIO, or a CTO, and a CFO. Give us just like a, a brief summary of how these three players work together in an enterprise buying decision.
0: Sure, as you get to know me, Peter, you realize I think of the world of these, I apply frameworks to everything from investing to startups to how I run product, right? And when i mean by three buyers, it's really just even a layer deeper. There's, there's three systems record in any company. Mm-hmm. So your company from your, your pizza stand to your Fortune 100 auto manufacturer, there's really three systems of record that make that company. Your customers, your employees and your assets, right? Those are the really the three parts of the balance sheet that that's that's your company. Mm-hmm. And so as a buyer or a seller or a startup, you're really selling to the CMO, this the VP of sales, right? So who owns your customer record, which is basically Salesforce and CRM are trying to own earth and pre-sales and post-sales, but the customer record is who you're selling or who you care about. Your employees so you're selling to the, either your IT person or VP of HR or VP of talent. It's like you're selling a system record around your employees. So that's everything from hire to fire. Recruiting, training, bonuses, et cetera, managing your employees because that's, that's the asset for any, any knowledge economy. Mm-hmm. And the third thing you care about is your assets. And that could be IP, it could be physical assets, it could be financial assets. If you're if you're an investment bank or or, or a commercial bank, mm-hmm. and so when you think about those three records, those are where a lot of software companies in the valley have been created, like HR software, Workday, mm-hmm. um, CRM software, Salesforce, mm-hmm. financial SAP and Oracle or ERP Oracle, right? And so as an investor and or as a founder, you want to break down. Okay, if I want to build a really valuable company. I either play in one of those axes of so this triangle, or navigate the intersections between these.
1: So the two investments we talked about, Cloudera, Docker, are both in the third prong of this triangle. It buy a- it assets, helping companies sort of manage infrastructure. Tell me about a play you've made in one of the other legs of this triangle.
0: Sure. So on the sales side. I invest in a company called Gladly that's talking about um, B two C customer support, so business consumer help desk. So today, uh, think about multiple channels. You have uh, when your plane is delayed, mm-hmm. right? You you either tweet at United or American Airlines or Delta. You maybe text them, maybe call them, maybe go to their Facebook page. And the customer experience across a bunch of these retail channels is just broken, right? Because one is ticket based or problem ticket-based, not not Peter or Jerry-based, and it's just fragmented. So Gladly is basically trying to create two things. One, an an omni-channel, Customer support experience, right? So it was like you're not a number, you're Peter, you're Jerry. And number two is trying to apply some level of um, machine learning or intelligence to basically solve a bunch of these problems for you, right? Because a lot of these questions from a delayed flight or or tracking a package either have been asked a million times. Or it can be automated. And so Gladly is trying to be modern, modern delight for the customer. And JetBlue is our first customer trying to fix that airline problem because I think you know that's one we've all we've all felt firsthand.
1: Great. I want to bring it back to Jerry's career. When I think about you sort of re-entering venture, series B and Docker makes a ton of sense, right? Like you have a decade's worth of experience in enterprise software, you're familiar with containers. This is straight up your alley. Tell me about the decision to venture into a slightly more foreign domain. Like I'm imagining that you could have just made enterprise software bets, like enterprise IT bets, for your entire career. What made you want to explore other forms of enterprise software?
0: I think it's a combination of uh, where my interests grow and lie, and there's there's a bunch of just great technologies and how AI is changing application software and SaaS software, how mobile is changing and how big data is changing it. And uh, number two, the the great founders kind of lead you everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of VCs say, hey, I'm going to do a deal in this space or I care about this space. But the truth is, we are often led by the best founders. And so when a great founder walks in your door, you're going to know it and you're going to spend time with him or her. But I think what happened for me is I understand technology from my my decade of VMware, but then I spent time like at Cloudera. So I understood the value of data. That also said, okay, so how data and infrastructure is changing how you build applications. And so when you combine, you know, my knowledge of of Docker and, and VMware plus the early experience with the Cloudera and how big data is changing how you have insights and customers that led to like machine learning AI, you realize, look, at the end of the day, IT exists to support a business process, right? It could be Order to cash, hire to fire, right? It is a business process. You don't build IT for IT's sake. And what I was seeing through these investments were the processes, the workflows in a company were changing dramatically by one, going cloud, going cloud native, how they build these applications, and then how they use data. And one of the insights was I was seeing how these new applications were being built, right? Not just big CRM applications, but You know, customer intimacy support applications, um, IT help desk applications, vertical SaaS companies attacking construction, like a a investment I made in Rumbix, or healthcare, or real estate. And when you see where the developers are going, and you see how data can change these applications, that led me to these investments and gladly spoke Rumbix Mm. and Blend.
1: So you're you're pointing to sort of an invisible theme across your investments that you've written about which is data and sort of machine intelligence as a defensible layer as a moat yeah. yeah 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 you wrote this great article last year that changed the way i think about data called systems of intelligence in which you posit that you know companies are moving away from ip and high switching costs as moats and towards data, and sort of the flywheel effects you can create from data and machine learning. I'd love to walk through an example here. Can you talk to us about how data allows a company like Rumbix to build defensibility?
0: Sure, so I think this frame or the system of intelligence came from uh, conversations we're having with, with with smart founders, and we're talking about how, yeah, you know, I think the title of my blog was the new moats, mm-hmm. and and we're sitting around saying, wow, you know, the the old moats defensibility, like economies of scale or or secret IP or deep IP, are getting harder and harder to sustain, and the reasons where open source and cloud are, are changing how you monetize your IP, right? Instead of selling like a widget, you're selling a, a service for the widget, right? And number two, the kinds of scale are so huge now because it, because Amazon and Google and Azure allows anyone to deploy an application quickly, and they want to compete against Amazon itself. That's that's a huge order. So all sorts of things where the moats are moving towards new areas, and historically, the two areas where. On top of scale and, and, and IP, people built what was called a system of record, the mm-hmm. database. Like it just, just talked about the three systems of record, you know, people, assets, and and customers or system of engagement, right? The, the the user experience between your developer or your user and the application that was Windows, right? Or the browser wars, which I lived through, right? That was super stressful for Microsoft because they thought Netscape and the browser going, was going to be the system of engagement for software going forward. Mm. And all, then more recently mobile, right? So Android versus iOS. Mobile became the system engagement of engagement how you consumed applications, and obviously that led to um, the smart war battle that we're still living through now. But In between the system engagement and system of record lies what I call the system of intelligence, which I think is a very fertile place for a starter to play in because one, you can either build a data set in a vertical like Construction like Rumbix and no other, no one else has. Google's not going to have the data that Rumbix has around construction labor productivity, or the data Blend is going to have around your mortgage software application. So you or, or you build healthcare verticals, real estate verticals, construction verticals, data that uh, the incumbents aren't going to have. Because if you're building an app to identify cats or dogs or hot dog or not hot dog, you're not going to do that better than than Google or Facebook. But if you're building a construction vertical software like Rumbix or, or Blend in real estate or, or healthcare vertical that we've done as well, that's a natural place where a startup can create a moat. The other way to create a moat or a system intelligence around data is crossing multiple system of record, mm-hmm. right? which you seem is maybe not intuitive at first, but really is when you dig deeper. Because Salesforce is going to build a system intelligence on their own CRM. Einstein, right? Or Oracle try to do that on top of their own applications, their, their own data. But there are certain categories or problems inside a company that if you can build intelligence across multiple databases, multiple applications, you can actually create another mode. And that led to my investment in a company called Spoke that's doing kind of IT help desk or internal ticketing across IT HR facilities. So asking questions like, I need a new computer to what's the best coffee place nearby, to how to contribute my 401k, that's three or four different systems of record that I need to query right there. So talking to three or four different applications, that's difficult. That's friction for the end user. Spoko create a frictionless system to talk to all three databases and give you your answer. And so when you find a way to either go deep in a vertical where you're building on data that no one else has—construction, financial services, healthcare, etc.—or going across databases or across some records where no one incumbent is going to dominate. That's another defensible place, right? It's a natural for a startup to play across multiple incumbents. Otherwise, you might as well just buy like public stocks and Workday, Salesforce, ServiceNow, et cetera, because they're going to own their own silos. But you have to go cross silo to find, I think, a new defensible moat.
1: Either you're going across silos or you're picking a niche. And going deep,
0: right? So I think those are the two logical ways around system intelligence. Go deep on, on a market or a vertical or, or a niche, which I think is all a logical evolution of, of the cloud market, right? A bunch of horizontal apps, now vertical apps. And we're seeing that from um look, self-driving cars is an expression of a, of a vertical niche, right? Logistics and transportation and collecting data around maps, driver data, et cetera, right? I mean, you look at all the startups in the self driving car space and then comes like Waymo or um, Uber, they're collecting data with cameras and maps that other players aren't, that Ford doesn't have or, or GM doesn't have. And mm. those incumbents are trying to catch up. So, again, that's an example of a niche where you're collecting data other people don't have, or you go across verticals, across silos, across other natural barriers.
1: I want to shift the conversation back to you a little bit. You've been at Graylock for almost five years now, and your second tour of venture duty. What's changed in those five years?
0: It's interesting, Peter. Every year, I think about how to get better at this job. Uh huh. Right, and th- there's different ways to try to get better at the job. It, it's how do I find great investments and in great companies? So, you know, so is thought, what thought leadership can I put out in the world? Like. New modes or system intelligence that would attract founders, or how do I sell myself in Greylock better? How do I influence founders better, right? And and when I'm on the board, and then how do I work better with other investors around the around the table? And so. I think every year there are different aspects of the job you can work on. I think the core investing judgment's tough because the investment life cycle's so long, five years, eight years, ten years for these exits. So you can try to improve upon your judgment every year, trying to see what, what investments you passed on that you should have leaned in or what investments did you do that you probably should have avoided. So I think a lot about that. Then I think a lot about the mechanics of doing the job better as an investor, as as a board member, as a as a mentor to the founders. Then I think about different spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, this framework of system intelligence didn't come out of nowhere. It, It came from me analyzing the market and thinking about what attributes would make a make a great company, and not just a good company, but a great one. The hard part of this job is there's a lot of good companies out there that you can invest in. And as a partner at Greylock, I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet a bunch of great founders and good companies. Mm-hmm. But we're looking for that exceptional company that could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 billion, right? The LinkedIn, the Facebooks, the work days of the world. And uh, those are special. And so we're really trying to separate the great from the good is,
1: is hard. You mentioned four companies. Fundamental skills of venture capital. You said sort of marketing, marketing both yourself and the firm, finding and diligencing investments, helping founders, and working with other folks on a board. I'd love to pick one of them that you've been focusing on and sort of talk through your own educational experience. Is there one of those that's been particularly prominent for you recently? The past couple of years, Peter a
0: lot of the joy and learning has been the last two. It's, it's how to be a good mentor, advisor, board member to the founders and executives, and how to be a good partner right around the table. Not to just my partners at like Greylock, but also the other investors within the company mm-hmm. on the board. Because it's all influence. right? As a board member, you don't run the company, you don't tell the state what to do. You give advice, you, you ask questions, and you realize that every founder, every exec you work with, reacts differently. And so the way you communicate with one founder is going to be different from another founder. So a three-time founder like Slomo Kramer and how I work with him on Cato Networks is very different than a first-time founder who you know dropped out of his MIT PhD program to start a company. And because they have different sets of experience and different things you need to learn, and. The past couple of years, I've been learning how to work with different types of founders at different stages of their career. And that's been a joy because investing is great. It's an intellectually challenging exercise to think about trends, technologies. But it's really the, the joy of kind of working with these teams and companies and, and helping these organizations grow has been, has been a lot of fun.
1: What does it mean to be a great board member? What sort of behavior do you appreciate in your fellow investors?
0: I think as a board member, and I think when I was at VMware, if I were a founder running a team, what would I want from my board? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the key is make sure you don't lose the forest for the trees right is, is is let's figure out in every board meeting in any given quarter there's only two or three issues that I think really make or break the company that you should be thinking about where right? the board the board's job is not to get in the weeds of the product detail or hr organizations they can give you advice they can ask questions on the product reviews but at the end of the day there's really two or three questions at every board meeting that should be top of mind mm-hmm. And the way I like to be a board member or or a a partner to the founders I work with is like, hey, ask those two or three questions, challenge them, challenge the founder, him or her, to think about them, and push them. Right. So our jobs to worry about risk, what could go wrong, what could go right. Our job as board members is to push to be more aggressive or pull you back when you're when you're being reckless. But really, it's what are the two or three questions, and that goes back to the first framework I said. You know, good versus great at your job or success is what 10 features matter in the product? What 10 questions matter at your job as a CEO day in, day out? As a board member or investor, what two or three questions matter right now? And if we can answer the right two or three questions, the rest would take care of itself.
1: Mm-hmm. We've heard a lot on this podcast about the relationship between investors and founders, what it means to be a mentor, how to influence a founder. How to adapt your working style to fit that of the founder, We haven't heard a lot about relationships between investors, and I'd love to pry into this a little bit. Like you mentioned that something to be good at as a venture capitalist is partnership, working with other investors. What are you trying to cultivate in that realm? It's
0: interesting because some people say vC is a lonely job because mm-hmm. you, you're you're making the calls. You're not making the calls. And they'll also often say it's interesting because venture capitalists are this weird frenemy relation. You compete with VCs to win a deal, but then you work with them on the board. The way I like to approach it is: every investment I work on, you have a team, mm-hmm. right? And, and that, to make it less known, that team is you know you and the founding team, but also you and the other investors, and so. When I join a board or have another person join me, you and me Peter' we're, we're that's my team for this company, right this new co, we're working together to make new Co successful. And when you approach it like that, so when we're invested together, we're we're actually on the same virtual company, same team. and that's the attitude I try to think in that room in that board with that founder solving that problem together. And then on another company, you know, I could be, you know, trying to win another investment, another Series A deal, and we're competing. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's how the industry goes. But it's interesting to compartmentalize project to project, company to company. And so, by being a good partner to another investor and to the CEO, we talk about the founder investor dynamic. But also, it's like, hey, how do you and I, as two board members in the same company, communicate? We have the same objective to make this come successful. And how you and I communicate. So, like, you and I have the same concerns because you and I have the three your top 3 concerns or different. my top 3 concerns then something's wrong. Hmm. And so either I'm not seeing something you're not seeing something. So let's have that conversation. We're most powerful as an advisor to the company if we think the top 3 issues are the same like hire a new VP of sales, like you know, increase the product velocity, hire, you know, a new VP of engineering or do a different partnership. But if you and I don't have the same three priorities, the same three questions, we're going to be less effective as board members. Mm-hmm. But mostly, if we're seeing different things, great. You know, you're know, you closer, you'll see other aspects, you have a different relationship with the founders than I do, and I'm going to learn from you. And I try to learn from my other investors. I learn from other board members. My my first board was Docker. Uh, I invested behind Peter Fenton, who I knew from back in the day, and he did Docker at Benchmark. And Peter's a fantastic investor and fantastic board member. And so, just learning from him on the Docker board has been educational for me. And so, I'm always trying to learn from the folks around me because they have a different experience set than I do, and they're going to see different things. So I think that's what it means to be a good partner. If we're, we're all the same. Why would you, as a founder, pick three VCs that all thought the same, looked the same, talked the same, right? You want, A, diversity on your, on your board, but also you want a functional board, people that can actually communicate and work with you.
1: So there's a balance between diving into disagreement and finding the alignment that you need to be a good board.
0: I think you want like all things a creative tension. Uh-huh. You want your product head and your engineer head and your company to have a creative tension, right? Or, or your sales and your engineer to also have a creative tension. Because I think that tension, like all things, creates the best result. And just like as a, as a founder or CEO, you probably want uh, folks around the table that are going to help you make the company better. And that's going to have tension between the founder and the investor because they're going to push you. They're going to ask you a bunch of questions. And you want investors that all see different parts of your business from a technical side to the business side to the partnering side. So you want that tension, at least it's not. Disagreement or fighting, but you want people to be pushing in all aspects of your of your business because you know there's multiple muscle groups you need to exercise. Mm-hmm. And when you have different board members working out different muscles of your company, then you're going to be stronger.
1: Is there a particular muscle that you tend to focus on? Oh gosh, um,
0: I, I think the muscle varies in the life cycle of the company,
1: uh-huh. right? So I think. If you, if,
0: when I do a seed investment or a series A investment, it's, it's two or three individuals, PowerPoint, and maybe, maybe some code. I think there it's hiring that uh-huh. muscle. So it's team building and it's, it's finding the right customers for early product market fit, iterating on the product and hiring the right people. And I think, you know, call it a series B inflection point where you're about go to market, then that's all about exercising the go to market muscle mm-hmm. pricing, packaging, channels, right? What's the right um, marketing message? What's the right way to kind of build a go to market organization? And then if you're lucky enough at series D, series E, and the company scaling, there's a whole bunch of other issues around, you know, upgrading the team, upgrading your products. How do you become a truly global organization? And, um, my partner Reed Hoffman also has a podcast called Masters of Scale, where he talks about the different phases. I think it was like family, village, nation, etc., because there's there's different challenges at different phases. And so I'd say there are different muscles you need to exercise at different phases of the company. I was lucky enough to see multiple phases, like from you know, a couple hundred people to fifteen thousand at VMware. And my work at Greylock, I've worked from Two founders, a single founders, to you know come in a series D, like blend with 500 employees, and the good investors and the good board members know which muscle you should work at at any given time.
1: I ask all my guests the same question in closing, which is, what do you wish you knew going into this that you know now? What advice would you have for your younger self?
0: So, if I could talk to myself five years ago when I was starting out at this tour of duty with Greylock Partners, to realize that what works for me is different than what works for other VCs, right? So, how I build a relationship with a founder and get conviction on investment and build that trust and conviction to invest in the company is going to be different from other partners at Greylock and other VC firms and to realize what you're good at, what your strike zone is, and just stick with it and don't worry about everyone
1: else. Jerry, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me I'm Venture Confidential.
1: Where can our listeners find you and who should be getting in touch with you?
0: Uh, so you can find me at uh, graylock dot com website or jerry at greylock.com, Just to email me, or I think at jerry chin on Twitter. It's probably want to see my my blogs, and musings, and uh, and random comments on on what's happening in the world. That's probably a good place to start.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out our library. Home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.